Hello, George. I'm so super excited. It's the first celebration in the Seal City Cinema. Do you like the comfortable seats? Oh, yes, you like it. They're so comfortable. I'm so super excited to announce the guest speaker's name is Mike Pilvacci from the UK, England. And many, many years ago, I was in Los Angeles and I heard Mike Pilvacci preaching for the very first time about the Holy Spirit, the way you talk to people with a very profound, very deep, very funny, and you brought so much humor into the message. And I said to myself, if I ever have the chance to invite Mike Pilvacci, I will do it. And voila! Mike Pilvacci is here in our house. Let's give a huge, big, and amazing applause for Mike Pilvacci in the Seal City. Come on, church! Hello. Good afternoon. So, it's great to be here. Thank you. And um, uh, I've said at the first two services, and I'll say at this one as well, um, this is novel for me, being given a, a little standing ovation before I speak, because the only time my church gives me a standing ovation is when I tell them that I'm going abroad for a few weeks to minister. <laughs> and um, so this is very nice and, uh, and wonderful. Um, it's been such a joy to be here um, in these days with you guys. Uh, I have loved it. I have been encouraged and refreshed and uh, really, really felt at home. And uh, the conference was amazing and I loved spending yesterday with some of your leaders. And uh, so far today, um, um, you know the first service, they, 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 were, they were okay. Um, the, the second service, eh, they were fine. Uh, but as soon as I walked in, I thought, oh my goodness, they, they're right when they said, they said to me, this was the good looking service. This was, they said that to me, they said, this is the service with the elite, the cream of the cream. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, that was Pastor Leo's very words to me. Um, I better be careful, hadn't I? Because <laughs> this might be recorded. Um, uh, no, it's a joy to be here. Um, I spend half my year uh, uh, traveling and trying to serve the church in different nations. And the other half, um, I'm in a town called Watford, just outside London, uh, where I've been pastor of the church for 21 years since we planted the church. And that's my home, and that's the people that are my family and, uh, and I, I love. But as I've uh, traveled and as I've uh, been at home and in different places, I have realized more and more that if there's one thing that we need to understand as Christians... Um, it's the most basic thing, and it is about God's love for us. And when by understand, I don't mean understand intellectually. Uh, we could all say that. We could all write down the correct answer in an exam. But you know, something that only the Holy Spirit does when he uh, puts his light on the Word of God, which is brings revelation so that we know it in our knower so that we know it deep inside, so that it lives in us. So it's not information that's been given, but a truth that we are eating, living, and breathing. And uh, uh, some say that, um, oh, we need to go beyond uh, understanding about God's love. We need to go, um, you know, deeper. We need deeper teaching. Well, when I hear that, I think of John, the great apostle. And uh, uh, John spent three years with Jesus, 
then he was involved uh, in the early church, in leadership in the early church, ministering with Peter and then with others. And then uh, as an old man, he was in exile on the island of Patmos when he had a revelation of Jesus and the future. And how does he finish? What is his parting shot as the elder, as the old man before he goes to heaven? Uh, In his letters uh, at the end of the Bible, uh, his great theme is God is love. Right at the end, he said, if there's one thing I want to leave with you, if there's one thing I want to say again, if there's one thing I want to underline to you, it is that God is love. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, I just want to read you one verse. Um, The whole section in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is amazing. But there is this incredible verse. Verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I, I, I don't know about if, if, if you've tried to be righteous. I've tried regularly to be righteous, and I've failed every single time. I remember the first time was just after I became a Christian, uh, which was when I was 15 years old. And uh, the first new year... Um, I had as a Christian, I made uh, a New Year's resolution on New Year's Eve that on midnight New Year's Day, from that moment on, I would not sin. I was very keen. (laughs) And uh, I decided that from midnight, I would live a sinless life for Jesus. And uh, um, uh, for for New Year's Eve, I, I sinned a little bit more just to get it out of my system. And uh, then came midnight on New Year's Day. And I need to say to you, uh, in all humility, but also in truth, from midnight on New Year's Day, I did not sin. I lived a sinless life for eight hours. I was sinless. And then I woke up. (laughs) And that's when the problem started. I don't know about you, but I find it really easy to be pure and sinless and holy when I'm asleep. My problem is the daylight hours. And after a few hours, I felt a failure again. And I thought, I'm never going to be like Jesus. And the truth is, I'll never be like Jesus. I couldn't possibly be like Jesus. Because I do a very bad impersonation of Jesus. The only person I've ever met who does a really, really good Jesus is Jesus. He does. He does a great imitation of himself. And the answer is not me trying to be something I'm not. But in him, in him, I can become the righteousness of God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. 
That's how it works. And that's what these beautiful, uh, this beautiful verse tells us. He gave himself for us that we might, he died for us that we might live for him. That's a pretty good exchange, isn't it? He died for us that we might live for him. Uh, and, and yet, also, uh, I don't know, the other, the other thing that when I first became a Christian, and I used to go to lots of meetings, I was very keen. I used to go to lots of meetings and lots of conferences. And I used to follow the, anyone, if someone told me that someone was anointed, I would stalk them. <laughs> I would, I would. And there was this poor Pentecostal lady called Jean Darnell. And, uh, and uh, she prayed for people for healing and things happened. And, uh, and they told me she was anointed. So the poor, I followed her everywhere. You know, wherever she was, whatever meeting, I was there. Anywhere around London. And whenever there was a queue to go to, in for, for Jean to pray for them, I was in the queue. We became friends. <laughs> you know, she said, oh, hello, it's you again. How are you? Fine, hands, head, do. You know, and, uh, and we did that. And you know what? I used to think that people who stood on platforms, they must be holy, they must be spiritual, their lives must be completely sorted. And you know, I thought that until I started to stand on platforms. <laughs> and my problem with that is I actually have to live with me. And I know what I'm like. And I know that I'm still broken. That life sometimes still hurts. And uh, just a little bit about my story, just briefly. Um, uh, uh, my parents were immigrants to England and uh, from uh, Cyprus. And uh, bless them, it never occurred to them to teach me English before I started school when I was five. So my first day at school was completely traumatic. I screamed the place down. There were all these strange hooligans that were shouting and running around and I didn't understand them. And for months, every break time and every lunch time, I would walk up and down the playground on my own, humiliated as all the kids played together. And then I would go sometimes and I'd hide behind a wall so they couldn't see my shame. Or I might lock myself in the toilet for the whole of the lunchtime so no one would see me. And uh, I remember there was, a, there was one time I saw one of the teachers trying to persuade these two boys to ask me to play with them. And they reluctantly came over. And the relief on their faces when I said, no, thank you. And uh, I just always felt the outsider. I always felt I was different. I always felt I didn't belong. And I was chronically shy. And also my dad, um, who wasn't a, a, a bad man in many ways, but he had a terrible temper. And his moods would swing violently. And there would be times, I remember when I would be seven, eight, or nine years old, and he would say to me, for no reason I could understand, get out of my sight, go to your room. I don't even want to see you. I can't stand the sight of you. Now, you think what that does to a kid when your own dad says, I don't even want to look at you. And then my dad would sometimes hit me for no reason. And uh, I remember one time I would be running down the street and my dad would be chasing me, uh, hitting me with a cane. And, uh, and then seeing some of my friends, some kids from school, standing on the street corner going like that. And I felt humiliated. And the pain was so much, and the isolation was so much, that for two years, from when I was 13 and 14, I almost completely shut down. I gave up trying to communicate with other people. I gave up trying to live in community. And I stopped talking. 
except to say yes and no to the teachers and my parents. Everyone was really worried about me. And I was miserable. Life really, really hurt. And um, um, I, I don't know if your parents, uh, grandparents, have ever told you about a, 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 a group called Simon and Garfunkel. Um, they, you might have heard of them. You'll see them in history books. Well, they were my, they were my era, and I loved their stuff. And there was one of their songs that it was like it became my song, and it's called I Am a Rock, I Am an Island. And there were lines in it. It was as if they wrote them for me. Um, safe hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. And of course, that's rubbish. <laughs> but that's what, that's what they sang. And that's what I said. That's what I said. I'm, I'm just isolated. I'm on my own. I'm an island. And then I met Jesus. And Jesus began a process of healing me. And I'd love to tell you that um, it happened overnight. It, it didn't. It, it's still a work in progress. And I'm old now. You know, it's still a work in progress. And I used to live in that place of isolation, that whenever I, I, was, I went anywhere near a group of people, a group, I saw a group of friends together, immediately, and it wasn't a thought, it was an emotion that was uncontrollable, would come up and say, don't go near them, they don't want you, they're just pretending. The teacher, God, has told them to play with you. And they don't really want, they, they're much happier without you. And I would withdraw. Now, over the years, Jesus has been healing me. And the way he's done it is by showing me his love and the love of the Father. But even now, occasionally, even though I don't live there, I can visit. If there's a combination of circumstances, if I'm very tired or feeling very low or a few things have happened, uh, I can stop. I think, oh my goodness, it's rising up. And then I have to speak to myself and speak the truth of, of what God says to me and what God says about me. And I've realized that actually for many of us, uh, that healing is an ongoing process. It doesn't all happen all at once. And that actually, actually God, God likes it that way. That's how God does it. There is another scripture that has been very dear to me all my Christian life. And that is this. You find it in 2 Corinthians again, uh, chapter 12. Um, beginning at verse 9. The context is, Paul says uh, that I had some great revelations and in order to stop me from becoming conceited, uh, um, uh, the, the Lord allowed a messenger from Satan, a thorn in my flesh. Three times I asked the Lord to deliver me. Three times he said this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Do you know what that means when it says his power is made perfect in our weakness? That means his power is not made perfect in our strength. It's in our weakness. Why? Because in our strength, we rely on our strength. It's when we're weak that we rely on him. It's when we're weak that we rest on him. It's when we, it's in our brokenness. You know, he puts his treasure in jars of clay. What does that mean? Jars of clay, they, were, they, they, they weren't great, the jars of clay. They were, they were, they were very chipped vases. 
And he hid his treasure in jars of clay so that the treasure would shine through the cracks. That's how it works. So Paul says, I will therefore boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I've realized that walking with Jesus and serving him, it's about being vulnerable before him. It's about walking in vulnerability. It's about walking in weakness. It's about walking, learning to be dependent. You see, the world tells us to be independent. The world tells us it's all about me. It's all about uh, my calling. Even in the church, we hear my calling, my ministry, my anointing, uh, uh, my human rights, my this, my that. Everything's about individualism. And yet the Lord, in his word, he calls us to live in community, first with him and then with one another. And, he, and, and, that, and that requires mutual interdependence, learning to depend on him. How does this work? It, it, it means we need to stop pretending about our broken places and bring our broken places to him and to receive the knowledge of his love in those places. Um, I have a friend who has um, uh, a daughter and uh, some, a few years ago, his little girl, she was a, um, um, she was a bit strange in one sense. Uh, her favorite toy was a porcelain doll, a china doll. Now, little girls, they like dolls that, that squeak and that you press them and they wee and they talk and they... And they, and they, I don't know, cry and laugh and, and all of that. Well, she liked this china doll. And they kept the doll on the mantelpiece. And every evening before the little girl went to bed, uh, they would bring the doll down and she would kiss the doll and she would stroke the doll and she would talk to the doll. And then they would put the doll back on the mantelpiece and she would go to bed. Well, one day, father and daughter were having a pillow fight and it got a little bit competitive and it went from room to room. And they found themselves in the living room. And then at one point, this little girl, somehow she got underneath her dad's defences. And with this pillow, she gave him a great uppercut to the chin. Well, this hurt his pride more than anything else. And he decided, right, I'm going to knock her out with the next blow. And he leaned all the way back in order to get a good you know, a, a good swing. And as he leaned back, by accident, he hit the porcelain doll and it started to shake and topple over. And the way he said it to me, he said, the next bit, it just seemed to happen in slow motion. Father and daughter went, no. But it was too late and the, the doll smashed in little pieces on the ground. The little girl looked at her daddy and she said with tears in her eyes, she said, you've killed my dolly. And he said, darling, I'm so sorry. I've got a credit card. I'll buy you a new one. And she said, I don't want a new one. I want that one. So he picked up all the pieces. He swept them up. He took them to his study. He bought super glue. And he spent the whole of the next day trying to glue this little dolly together. And after a whole day, he, he used all the pieces. But the dolly basically looked like this. And he took the doll out to the little girl and he said, look, darling, here she is. I'm so sorry. I'll buy you a new one. And his little girl said to him, but daddy, I already told you, I don't want a new one. I only want this one. 
And he said, but darling, this one's broken. And then she said, just because she's broken doesn't mean I can't love her. And I believe that's God's word to some of you. Just because you're broken doesn't mean he can't love you. You know, it's pride that says, I'll only let him love me in my strength. But to let him love you in your weakness, in your brokenness, that is true healing. That is true liberation. That is true freedom. And that's how it works. And you know, when we begin to understand that he loves us because he loves us because he loves us, it sets us free. You know, if I today preached the most amazing sermons in the history of preaching and the whole, the whole of Zurich and the whole of Switzerland came to the Lord, he couldn't love me any more than he loves me right now. And if I had a total disaster and I started talking gibberish and I started quoting the Quran and Buddha and everything else and all of you left the church as a result, he couldn't love me any less than he loves me now. And that's what keeps me going. And that's what's the rock and my foundation. He loves me because he loves me because he loves me. And it's not based on my performance. It's not based on what I do. What I do comes out of the knowledge of his love. We love because he first loved us. And you know, that's the motivation, first of all. That's the motivation for worship. When I first became a Christian, I honestly couldn't understand as I was reading the Bible why God was so keen for us to worship him all the time. You know, I thought, what is wrong with him? You know, and I, I remember I said, I said to God, God, do, do you have an insecurity problem that you, you need us to keep telling you you're all right, that you're really good? You know, and I, I just imagine it was like the Lord was saying, come, my people, praise me, thank me, hallelujah me, tell me how wonderful I am. And I was thinking, why do we need to do that? And do you know what it was? I didn't understand what worship was. And I've realized that God does not have any insecurity problems. He's very comfortable, I was going to say in his own skin, he's very comfortable in his own godness. He's, he's, very, he's very sure of himself and he's very relaxed in who he is. And he doesn't need us to remind him. No, that's not why we worship. Worship is the language of love. I have two friends, Tim and Rachel. And Tim is a worship leader. He wrote songs like, Here I Am to Worship and some other songs. And um, I remember uh, just after they got married, they came back from their honeymoon. And the very soon after, literally a few days after they came back from their honeymoon, the three of us went to Australia to, to speak and lead worship at a camp in the middle of the country in, in, in Australia. And uh, uh, we stayed in these two rooms in these chalets next to each other. And it was in the middle of nowhere. So there was no noise, no background noise, no TV, no radio. And we were in next door rooms to each other. And the walls were incredibly thin. <laughs> incredibly thin. And it is amazing what you can hear in the middle of the countryside in Australia through thin walls in the middle of the night, especially if you've got a glass up against the wall. And I just want to tell you what I heard. 
Now, what I'm about to tell you is very private, so please do not repeat it to anybody else. If we can keep this between us, uh, I know I can trust you. And, uh, and basically what I heard was this. Uh, Tim said, oh, Rachel, Rachel, when you flick your hair back, it sends shivers down my spine. Oh, Timmy, Timmy, when, when you play your guitar and, and you strum your notes, oh, Timmy, I, I do love you. Oh, Rachel, Rachel, no one sings backing vocals like you. Oh, Timmy, Timmy, when you, when you get passionate in worship and, and your dimples all show. Oh, Timmy, Timmy, I think I'm going to explode. Oh, Rachel, Rachel. And it just went on and on and on. I wanted to vomit. It was like, flip, is that what you have to do when you get married? I'm glad I'm single. What were they doing? They were praising each other. They were thanking each other. They were adoring each other. What kind of love would it be if it was never expressed? Worship is the language of love. Worship is us expressing our love for him. And we can only love him if we know he loved us first. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how it works. But you know, if, if, worships, if true worship springs from that knowledge, so does true witness. When I first became a Christian, I, I used to feel guilty by all these evangelists coming and telling us how we had to tell everyone about Jesus, because otherwise they were going to hell. And they would tell us, how many people have you led to Christ? <laughs> and I would feel really guilty. They said, you need to go out there and tell everyone about Jesus. You have discovered him for yourself. You have met him. You have been saved. How selfish it is that you should go to heaven and you should be responsible. The fire is coming. Rescue them before it's too late. And I feel terrible. I go out there and I think, oh, God, tell everyone about Jesus. Oh, no, this is embarrassing. Oh, hello. Can I tell you about? You don't want to know, do you? Okay. Uh, can I? Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? You don't, you don't want to know about the four spiritual laws. Have you been washed in his blood? No, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Oh, no. So have you thought about your eternal destiny? Oh, this is terrible. And I felt like an, I felt like an insurance salesman. You know, it was, it was horrible. But do you know what changed all that? What changes that? When you really, really know his love. Again, with Tim, I, I tell you, I've known Tim since he was 11. I knew straight away when he fell in love with Rachel. And the way I knew is he wouldn't shut up about her. All the time, he kept talking about Rachel. Every conversation we had, it ended up about Rachel. And it was like, you know, I would say to Tim, how did you feel about the church service? Oh, I thought Rachel's backing vocals were the highlight. Um, uh, how do you feel about your new song? Do you, think, do you think it's going well? Oh, the second verse, Rachel says it's her favourite. And after a while, I started trying to think of things that I could bring up so we could actually have a conversation where I didn't have to talk about flipping Rachel. So, so I remember one time I said to him, hey, Tim, did you watch the football on TV last night? Did you see Manchester United? And he said, yes, I did. And then he said, you know Wayne Rooney? I said, yes. And he said, there's something about him that reminds me of Rachel. <laughs> And honestly, guys, honestly, 
Honestly, no one said to Tim, now that you have discovered how wonderful Rachel is, you've got to talk about her to everyone every day. Tim didn't wake up in the morning thinking, oh no, I've got to talk about Rachel. I've got to go and witness to Rachel. He couldn't flipping shut up. You talk about what you love. You can't help it. You talk about, you, talk, you, you hung out with me for a little while. Pretty soon we'll talk about food. We will. We will. We, you talk about what you love. And, that, and witness is an overflow of knowing you're loved and you love back. And thirdly and finally, as we come into land, um, you know, you know, it's when we know we're loved, it changes us. That's how, that's why we don't have to keep doing the resolutions and failing because it comes, you see, it's a liberation. It's not about law. It's about grace. It's not about legalism. It's a liberation. And when you know you're loved, I have another friend and colleague called Andy. His name's Andy Croft, and he leads the church with me and the ministry, the Soul Survivor. He's 28. And, uh, um, uh, now. and he got married five years ago to Beth. And, uh, and, and do you know, before Andy got married, he was a normal guy. <laughs> he was. He was normal. He and I, we used to go to the gym together and lift weights and do all that stuff, and, and you know, that's how I built my muscles here. And, uh, and we used to play squash together and, and, and do all sorts of male things. And then he married Beth. And after a while, it got horrible. It really did. I remember one day I phoned him and I said, hey, Thursday's your day off. Are you doing anything on your day off? And he said, oh, Mike, I'm so looking forward to my day off. I can't wait for my day off. It's going to be great. And, and I said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to spend the whole day at Ikea with Beth. <laughs> and I was like, you're what? And I, I said to him, I said, Andy, you used to have testicles. <laughs> and, and now... You're excited about spending a whole day at a Swedish furniture store looking at wardrobes? What has happened to you? And eating meatballs. And do you know what happened to him? He fell in love with Beth. But then, after a while, he not only loved Beth, but he started to love what Beth loves. It's scary how a person can change. And it's not like, oh no, no, I love Beth. I've got to, oh, I've, I've got to go and look at Swedish furniture. Oh dear, because I love Beth. It's, oh, it's like, oh Beth, we can share this together. Your affections change. Your affections change. And as I am, um, come, oh hello, there you are. Come on, little ones. <laughs> come on then, come to Daddy again. There you are. There you are. Come on. Where's the Coldplay boy? There you are. <laughs> All right. Come on. I just want to. I just want to come into land with this, and then actually, what we're going to do is we're we're probably going to pray a little bit, and then and then we'll. Um... You don't look anything like him, really. <laughs> and and. <laughs> I have another friend called Anthony. And um, um, Anthony's also got a little girl. I don't know why my stories today about little girls and 
dads, but they are. And, uh, and one day, his, Anthony's little girl said to him, Daddy, why don't the two of us make a fire together? We can build a fire. And he said, okay. And they went out into the garden. They got some sticks and they got some logs. And then they got some paper and they put it underneath. And, and Anthony, he lit a match. And his little girl, she knelt right in front. And she went like this, right in front of the little fire. She went... And honestly, more water went on the fire than air. But despite the fact that she was putting loads of water on it, after a while it started to take and it became a raging fire. And she turned to her daddy and she said, did you see daddy? Did you see what I did? I started that fire all by myself. I did it all on my own. And her daddy said, what a clever girl. Daddy's so proud of you. What a great girl. You did. You did that all on your own. And she looked so proud. But do you know what she didn't realise? Was that as she was sitting in front of the fire, kneeling, going... <laughs> her daddy was kneeling behind her. And he was going... <sighs> and that's how it works. The best we can do for him is <laughs> but our father he's behind us and he's going <sighs> and he loves doing it with us because he loves our company for some reason he does my father enjoys hanging out with me he does, and he loves you. <laughs>